0: Today, I'm joined with three other really awesome small business deal hosts. So we're going to ask some questions submitted by people on my email list, and we're going to have a lot of fun, and it all starts right now. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, and welcome to my three guests. I'm joined here by three people that many of the people in the audience, I'm sure, will have heard of before. But I think what we should do is we should get started with a little bit of an intro round. So uh, why don't we start, well, I mean, I don't know if you guys are seeing the screen the, way I, the same way I am. I know on Zoom, they kind of mix it up sometimes. But uh, Ryan, why don't you give us a, a brief introduction and tell us about who you are, the name of your show, and, uh, and, and what you talk about on your show.
1: Thanks, David, for having us on your show. And so uh, I'm the podcast host of Let's Buy Business. My name is Ryan Condi. Uh, as, as everybody here, we talk about all things acquisitions. And so I've uh, been mainly involved in the online world. Uh, for online businesses and online acquisitions. I spend most of my time as a, a online business broker and I have a couple of different content sites that I still run. I exited all my e-commerce businesses in 2019 and like to just see other people be successful in the acquisition world.
0: Awesome. So in addition to hosting the show, you, you are a business broker today. Correct. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Jared, tell us about yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Jared. Uh I host of the buying online businesses podcast Uh, I started to try and build my own online businesses and so I could travel and and surf, and I just sucked at it. And then I thought, (laughs) I came across the stat that 90% of startups fail. So I bought my first online business in 2014, about nine years ago. Uh, And then I bought a few more and then started teaching people um, once they're like, hang on, dude, what do you mean you're not working and you're just traveling and surfing? Can you teach me this stuff? So, yeah, we set up a business to help people do the same. Awesome.
0: Awesome. That's great. And Will.
3: Yes. David, thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for inviting me, including me here. I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. A little inside baseball with the four of us. I, My name is Will Smith and my podcast is called Acquiring Minds. And like everybody here, I interview people who have acquired businesses as their path to becoming entrepreneurs. It's a twice-weekly uh, coming up on episode 180, I think on Monday. So I've been at it for about two years, and awesome. I, I do have guests that buy digital businesses, like Ryan and Jared. But I have found that over the t- over time, the type of guest is buying more of a traditional business. So I don't have as many digital business buyers as i as I did when I started, which is something I think it's kind of interesting to talk about. So maybe we'll we'll get to that.
0: And and I'm noted you have some sponsors on your podcast but are mm-hmm. are you involved in any kind of business or anything outside of the podcast? I
3: have a business that I co-founded some years ago that I have I handed the reins over to my business partner a few years ago so I'm not that active in it at all. Um okay. and acquiring minds is really the the full-time thing for for most of the 2 years I've been at it actually. So I awesome. have I, I'm involved in another business but kind of somewhat passively.
0: Okay, okay. So, what I, I have an email list that, uh, that I always invite people to subscribe to. And, you know, if anyone out there is, is curious about the email list, if they go over to uh, DavidCBarnettList.com, they can sign up, which I encourage people to do. But uh, I got a whole bunch of responses back from people on the list when I told them that I was going to have the three of you on my show. So, some of, the, some of the questions that people sent in were just fantastic. And I want to kick things off with the first question, which was submitted by Roger. Who says? Who wants to know if we see any patterns for those that have been successful on the buying a business journey? Um, why don't we go back in the around way and, and start off with you, Will? Is there any pattern to the people that uh, that you've seen be successful?
3: Yeah, I love this question. Well, one thing as I thought about it was that I think there are two things there. There's the buying phase. So, can you be successful at buying a business? Which is a big task in its in its own right, and then there's, as the cliche goes, that's when the work begins. And it's actually operating yeah. that business is phase two. So being successful at those two phases is very, a very different skill set and a very different thing. And to be successful in the entire journey, you have to do both well. Um, so what I would say, I'll skip the searching one. I'll just focus on kind of the operating. Um, you got to, I'd say, say the kind of three things that jumped out at me. You got to be prepared for hard. I think David, you and I talk about this a lot. I think um, when you first hear about buying a small business, you hear kind of the napkin math and and the the finance the financial pitch to do it, which is pretty compelling. And only later, if you're paying attention, do you do you learn how difficult it can actually be? If, and maybe less so on digital businesses. Of course, digital businesses are also hard. but operating a people heavy business, is a really difficult thing. So you got to really be prepared for that. You gotta, so that's number one. Number two, you got to be prepared for surprises. So another thing that comes up again and again and again is this you gotta to, to close to buy a small business, you have to find the sweet spot of doing as much due diligence as you can, but you can never diligence away all the risk. At some point, you got to step off the ledge, at some point you got to accept that there's just gonna be a lot of opacity there. And I've heard multiple people say something to the effect of you only really know the business that you bought once you've actually are in there operating it. That's pretty scary. Uh-huh. Like you spend months looking for a business, maybe months transacting the business and you still don't really know what it is until you're actually in there operating, meeting all the people, you know, seeing behind the curtain. Um, but I think that's that's pretty common. Um, and then, oh, I guess my last one uh, was about the search, which is just the persistence of, of finding in the search because the search itself, when you're looking for a business can be really demoralizing and um, you're going to spend some money and you're not going to have money coming in and it can be hard. We can get into that. But um, so those would be my, those would be my big doing all those right is uh, what I see successful people getting right to be successful.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Ryan, um, when, when you help people buy a business, are you keeping in touch with them over the course of time? Like are you keeping tabs on some of the people that buy with you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And it really, what I want to add to what Will had said, and he nailed it on so many different fronts, that the searching for a business is is very different than the actual taking over in the operating side. Mm. Um, yeah, from from a long term perspective, you never want to do a deal that potentially could go south for the seller or the buyer, right? You know, at the end of the day, you don't want anybody to make these financial decisions and financial risks and putting their their future finan- family uh, family at risk in terms of their financials, and then also just their day-to-day and just their livelihood. Um, I, I typically follow up with all my buyers pretty constantly, you know, every three to six months. It's it's funny. I sold a business a couple of years ago and that buyer just came back and they're ready to sell that business again. So I think there's a, a lot of power to be involved. Um, at the end of the day too, I, I work with a lot of businesses that I have a lot of familiarity with just having my online background and, Uh, I sort of, I I sort of end up being a a quasi consultant that's not paid or anything. And, you know, six months down the road, they ask, Hey, how did you do this? Or what, what would you do here? As we're looking at the PNL and I'll say, Oh, tweak this or tweak that. Or, you know, that those margins seem like they're off. So there's a lot of benefit in staying in contact with them just because, you know, at the end of the day, all, I think all four of us, our reputations are built on acquisitions and we want everybody to be successful just because someone is selling and someone is buying doesn't mean someone is right or someone is wrong and you want someone to fail or anything.
0: Yeah. Oh, great points. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, like a real estate agent that helps you buy a house and then, you know, keeps in touch with you over the course of time, because one day you're going to want to sell and, and you want that relationship to still be going. Um, Jared, what, uh, how about you? Any patterns that you notice, uh, amongst these buyers?
2: Yeah. Um, i I agree with will and ryan both really good points and i'm just only going to emphasize a lot of what they said in maybe a different flavor um the searching and the buying as the searching of and buying of the business is is a grueling uh task and a lot of people think you can just go and go to like go to the supermarket and just pull off a uh business off the shelf and and buy it and then you get into the operation (laughs) if only it was that easy right like just check the back of the ingredients and yeah, that's cool. That's something I want. Uh, it's There's a lot more to it. And coming to back to what Ryan does in terms of being a quasi business coach, this is what the most successful people are doing in business and out of business, I believe. is, And I, you know, I believe life is business and business is life. And there's so many philosophies that I lend from each one. And one is what Ryan's actually doing is, Uh, he's in it for long game, right? He's doing this business coaching because he knows that he's going to be able to help somebody get a great exit um, and he's going to get rewarded for that as well. And everybody's just super stoked with that outcome, but he's doing it for the long term, right? He's, you know, sometimes there might be people that are not going to sell, you know, sell a business or work with Ryan in the long run. And that the reputation that he's building is the most important and most valuable thing. Um, and he's going to get that value back eventually. And it's the same with somebody that's looking at searching a bit, searching for a business and owning a business. In my opinion, is that a lot of people see the results of other people through podcasts like this and case studies and videos on YouTube that like you can achieve, you know, seven million dollars in seven point five seconds, uh, and they go and try and do it themselves and realize, like, damn, like that time frame has just like really squashed me, and then they feel like. What Will said is they feel demoralized and realize that, you know, that little thing of them not achieving that goal and that happening multiple times over the compounding effect of them not achieving goals because they have set them in, sh- you know, such a high bar in such a short time frame they're setting themselves up for failure in my opinion. And the best people uh, or the most successful people in the searching phase and the owning phase are people that like, they're just playing the long game. They just know that the more they're in the, the aim of the game is to stay in the game and they just, in the game and learning and learning and learning and all of that compounds over time and gets them a a really successful result. So that's probably one of the biggest ones. And there's a multitude, I believe of like we could have like three podcasts on just like what's, what the successful people do between all of us. I think.
0: Well, you you know, it's interesting because if I was to say, you know, is there a a pattern to who's been successful in this journey? I would say that the people who have realistic expectations are the most successful. Um, I've seen a lot of people who are trying to replicate, like, you know, to Jared's point, like some crazy story. And then they're like, well, if that person did it, I can do it too. Meanwhile, that story is like this incredible outlier situation that's completely outside of the norm of what, what might be expected in, in, in a business deal. And they'll, they'll literally waste years of their life trying to chase that super hard to achieve deal. And Will, I like how you broke it into two parts, the acquisition and the operation, because right. I, I think it was a couple of years ago, I, 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 uh, I started using a term called the day two problem where I, I've experienced people that will, you know, sort of do all these crazy contor- financial contortions to try to make a deal come together and then they'll make it work and maybe they'll use some alternative forms of financing that have a high cost to them or, or whatever, but they'll, they'll get the deal to work and they'll get the deal done and then they end up with a business where you know they've so overcommitted the cash flow that they put themselves in this jeopardy position starting on day 2 because they they were so focused on getting the deal done that they never really sat back and thought about what it was going to be like to operate once they actually got their hands on the reins and and really to me that's the most important part because that's when you make the money is is when you actually become the operator of the business or the owner anyway um anyone want to add anything else to that or
1: uh, i got one other thing i want to add too i think that those are all incredible points i think you were hinting towards it here david is you know people who are the one of the successful things i see with searchers and buying a successful business is they they end up they they look for what they want right they're very clear on what they're looking for if you just want to go out there and buy a business there is a million businesses to buy but probably none of them are good for you, right? And your skill sets and, you know, the amount of money you're trying to make or the size or how many employees you want or the location that it might be. You need to know exactly what you're, whether you're looking for an online business or you're looking for something in the Seattle area that is home service based in the two to $5 million mark, you can get very specific. Um, And then I would say the last thing I find with a lot of just people making a switch into entrepreneurship whether they're coming from a w2 or whether they're you know this is this the second time they're go at it is they're comfortable being uncomfortable and they're comfortable betting on themselves because as you get further and further into these as everybody has seen here and and hopefully are, you know your guest david have seen this too is um, you can't learn everything but you need to be curious enough to to be able to learn everything and then you round out that team so you can fill in the gaps right and so you're comfortable hiring out that team, finding the right pieces in place so you can build out your team. Because, you know, at the end of the day, those gaps can really uh, you, you don't know where your blind spots are. And that's where you, the rest of your team can come into place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great points. Um, the, the next question on our list is from Richard. And I, maybe Richard is feeling a little bit of consternation here. And, and if you can think about some of the some of the people and some of the stories that you've covered on your shows He's asking, how can you get a business owner that clearly doesn't know what they're doing to give up and sell? So, you know, (laughs) I I, I think I'd like to to preface this with a little story because way back before when I was much younger, uh, I used to work for the Yellow Pages and I would every once in a while run across one of these business owners and I would be like, wow, this person really doesn't have any idea what they're doing, but they had the right product at the right price in the right place. They just couldn't help but be successful, and and sometimes we run into these people, and you know. So, what advice would you give to Richard who who really wants somebody to to put something up for sale but won't? Is there anything we can do, Jared? Jared, why don't we start right. with you?
2: Yeah, i'll I'll have a I'll have a hit at it, um, but I, I I don't typically try and get people to sell their businesses. Normally, they come to us with a business that they want to buy or sell um, and they're ready. But I would just suggest like this comes down to sales and marketing and, and helping them working out where, what, what is their future in the business? What would it likely look like if they can continue down this route and just setting realistic expectations. And is that something they want or don't want? And then if it's something they don't want, how do you set up a win, win, win where they're happy to sell, all the business or is there a way that like they're like hang on i still think there's some value attached to this business i want to stay with it a little bit and they keep some level of equity in the deal as well um and maybe not the maybe not sell the whole thing you know and then they get some help with somebody that may know and have more experience in operations in that type of deal to get that thing growing with the insider knowledge of the previous owner um, that could be a way that I would foresee it. That I think, Ryan, you know, I don't know, Ryan, have you come across like people with deals that they're like, they're really. So you're saying, to you're it saying and, Jared,
0: paint, paint the picture for the seller of what the future might look like, you know, to help them to yeah, see I'll, maybe
2: what they're not. Exactly. Exactly. Like just help them get more, like get closer to what their actual goal is, right? Because they might be so in the weeds of the business and just thinking, like, oh, I'm just trying to you know, trying to keep this thing going and, and I want to try and grow, but what they're doing is not actually working and that you just might, if you find their pain points and their frustrations aren't aligned with um, them overcoming them to get the results they want, then work out like, all right, is there somebody else that can help you get those results?
3: Okay. I, yeah. I assume Richard is the one that wants to buy the business. I think he is, yeah. <laughs> not, this is not a lot so of information is, there, but th- this I, is what I,
0: I, I, what I what I mean when I say he feels a little frustrated because I think he thinks he can do more with the business than its current yeah. owner.
3: If he has any way to know what the SDE or the roughly what the profit, like what the business is cash flowing every year, I'd say um, make an make an offer, like a, a, an informal offer, because I think if you can to this, this idea that you guys have of like painting a picture for the seller. A, a an actual money dollar amount in front of somebody gets the wheels turning, gets them thinking about, hmm, well, that's, that's, I could, I could walk away from this 1.5 million or $3 million richer. And what would I do with all that money? And, um, and, and it also makes you seem, you know, makes you kind of serious as a buyer, even though I'm not actually proposing like a, a formal offer, it's more of an informal offer, but it kind of forces the issue. And I think it could kind of switch the, this prospective sellers psychology into like imagining a future outside the business. Of course it could also backfire and be really offensive. So. We're desperate. I think Richard's desperate. Desperate
0: times. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> any any input, Ryan, that you want to contribute
1: so, to this? Uh, is, so this sounds like Richard has a very particular business in mind. So we obviously don't know what that is. And he might have a different relationship with the seller or, you know, who knows the seller might be his dad or the owner might be his dad, right? We, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of moving pieces to this. Um, Come on, dad, let me
2: run a business.
1: I know. <laughs> yeah. R- Richard's ready to take over guys. If, if, if He's listening. So um, I work with a lot of sellers, right? And, there's there's not a way you can convince a seller to sell unless you just want to throw them a ton of money, right? You throw a ton of money at them, so there's a price for everything. Uh, sellers really need to be ready to sell. And so yeah. I think the stuff that's been said earlier is, is, is right on, right? Like you got to understand the business that you're getting into. Maybe you have that sort of relationship where you know, the size of the business, make an offer. Uh, this is relevant, but not relevant. I know a guy in real estate who wins a lot of real estate deals from real estate that's not on the market. And his, literally, his strategy is he puts $100,000 in escrow and says, Hey, goes to the owner of this property and says, There is $100,000 in escrow. You sign this document and we'll do two weeks of due diligence. And, you know, hundred grand is yours. And he's, and, and I said, How does that work? And, you know, he, This is a business, so it's not real estate, but he said, people underestimate how much other people will do to get $100,000 in cash right now. Now, those numbers could be way off, and this is real estate in this example, not business, but there has to be some sort of uh, get them motivated in some way, right? And it could, whether it's cash and then, you know, there's a million different ways to structure it, but I think we're we're missing 98% of this story, but I I think Richard- (laughs) has, has some ways of just, you know, pushing that forward or even having that conversation with them.
3: Yeah. Dangle something, Richard, a carrot, you need a
0: carrot of some kind of something. What, What I would say to Richard is I would say, I would say this, that the, the real benefit in small business ownership is in the ownership and not in the sale. Like, I mean, these, these things sell for relatively low multiples and so you're talking about a business, it's someone's personal property. I mean, they have to have some degree of motivation to want to sell. And so I, I, I run into a lot in my coaching program. I have a lot of people who are looking for specific industry businesses and they'll go out and have conversations with owners in that industry who have no motivation whatsoever. And the only thing you can do is just plant the seed of a relationship mm-hmm. and just and circle back around every once in a while and let them know you're still interested and just wait for something to happen in that seller's life. Because nine times out of 10, it's, a, it's some personal thing happens in a person's life that makes them realize things would be better if I wasn't owning this business or running this business. And that's, that's sometimes just what you have to wait for, Richard. You just got be, to be patient sometimes.
1: I've heard a lot of examples as you are making yourself available and letting that owner know that, hey, I'm interested in buying this business. Eventually, they will be interested in selling, and as long as you're maintaining that relationship, you'll be able to, you know, be the first one in line. You'll they'll be the you'll yeah. be the first one at the top list they think of when they're like, you know, I'm ready to move on.
3: Yeah, when, I, when people, I feel like it's kind of yeah. like you you can't control that they want to sell or when they want to sell, but what you can control is who is top of mind when that moment comes and make your and make it make it make it be, make it be you.
2: <laughs> and you've got that what? carrot dangled at the time. They that could allow them maybe a couple of months, six months, a year to like build that story of like, oh, that money, that bag of cash is sitting there. If I do sell it, you know, when those all yeah. those little painful things in the business are coming along, like it's had a really bad week or a bad month, and just like that, that, you know, that dangled carrot is like starting to look a little bit more appetizing.
0: <laughs> when I was doing my business broker training, I was told that you always call bakeries on the hottest day of the year.
2: Mm-hmm. And ask them
0: if they want to sell, right? Because because yeah, on that day they don't do. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so they Start calling these it's business owners
1: sicker. on what April fifteenth when they got to start paying their taxes or something. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I've uh, well, so so you guys all talk with business owners on your shows. So Anthony's got a question. He wants to know what the most interesting deal or guest that you've had on, or maybe we can open this up to maybe some top couple of ones, but what would be some of the most interesting ones? Who wants to take a stab at this one first?
3: I'll take a stab. I I, um, I didn't have the most, I just kind of looked at uh, a bunch of recent episodes that I'd run and I I, I love the fact, I mean, so many of the stories that are on Acquiring Minds, I just, I love and find interesting. So this isn't necessarily, I just wanted to kind of give people a cross section. Um, so I got a handful here, so I'll go quick, but one was this woman named Heather Shattuck Heidorn. She was an academic, a PhD from Harvard, really wanted to just be an acad- a career academic. Well, academia sucks, it turns out. You get paid peanuts, they work you to the bone, and she was really at the top of her game, kind of on tenure track, everything you'd kind of want, and absolutely miserable and barely making ends meet with her family. She learns about acquisition entrepreneurship. She buys a uh, a cabinet, like a custom cabinet business franchise, actually in Maine. In Maine, and okay. um, and now she couldn't. She's just absolutely thrilled. It was the um, it was the it was is it was exactly what she needed. Now, early days, I I don't try to paint too rosy of a picture of any of this stuff because we all know the risks and so on. But she she was she couldn't have been more enthusiastic about this path. That one is just interesting because it shows how far away from business or small business you can be and still through this path of acquisition entrepreneurship, get into it. So that's one. A couple others are uh, somebody I interviewed recently, a guy called Josh Meadow. And Josh bought a, a logistics business, kind of a traditional logistics business. But what was so interesting about his story is that Josh's approach to buying a business was whatever he bought, whatever kind of traditional "Quote unquote boring small business he bought. He was going to look for ways to make it to transform it into something that was could be really fast growing. And this is this is and he and so his story is that he succeeded in doing that. He bought this logistics business, figured out that one niche they were serving, which was biomedical. So the shipment of biomedical." Um, vaccines and other really kind of sensitive materials like that was this really lucrative niche for them. And they could, if they really just focused on that, that they could explode the business, which he is now on doing and he sees an IPO in their future. So now he's basically running this kind of unicorn. Um, But, but the point is that I think a lot of my guests and me and, and a lot of this space is about buying kind of a steady Eddie, you know, that we affectionately call boring businesses that are you know, reliable and, 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 and enduringly profitable is the, is the phrase Mm -hmm. of choice. Um, But there is, there is this other way of thinking about it, which I'm going to buy such a business, but then I'm going to figure out a way to really transform it so that it can be a leader in its industry. So they can be fast growing so that I can bring some entrepreneurial energy to it, some imagination and not just merely operate what it was before. So I thought that was interesting. Last one. (laughs) Um, this, this gentleman, Chris Jones, who just aired a week or so ago, and he bought a traditional blue collar business foundation repair. So your house has foundation issues and his crews go in there and fix it for you. Um, and his story is, was a, was a bad story that, that he persisted and came out the other side from. So buys this business, very unhelpful sellers, his GM quits early on early in the transition the gm quits to start a competing business um there's it, it, sales start collapsing for that, that's
0: like the nightmare that most buyers have right there. it's the it's yeah, the
3: nightmare great. scenario and and he's yeah. you know he he's has mom- i mean he's nauseous at times that this is this is so terrifying and, and hard for him but over the course of his first year, he pulls through the whole. I won't go into the whole story that's in the episode, but he pulls through. And now he feels like he has his arms around the business. The toxic stuff is gone. Sales have come back. And he's confident enough that he's actually thinking he'll buy a second business if, if the opportunity presents itself. So that story I, I really like because it, it it does it shows the hard, but it also shows kind of somebody who made it through the hard and, and was ultimately Victorious, we hope, at least at the end of his first year. So that's a kind of a cross section. I'll stop there.
0: Oh, cool. Jared, how about you? What are some of your most interesting uh, stories or guests?
2: I've got one that's similar to what you've got, Will. Uh, and I'll share that one last. But the first one that I just thought was quite interesting is when I first started uh, teaching people to buy businesses uh, I had somebody buy an e-commerce business and they went through the process and it was painstakingly hard to buy the business and they bought the business and they realized damn this is like way more than I bargained for (laughs) and they turned around and realized and it's a and it's you know, call it what you think it is. But I think it was a really good thing for him to realize like, all right, he bought a business and then decided I'm going to have to, I'm going to sell this and I want to go back to being an employee. Hmm. And that's where he does his better work when he wasn't under that. You know, some people are really good when they're backed in the corner and they've, you know, some people are cut to be entrepreneurs and some people are not. And that's, and he went way and thought, I'm not going to be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to stick with my work. So that was a quite interesting one because it was, for me, it was like the first in within the first handful of few people I'd helped buy a business, and I was like, "Hang on a second! You just went through all this work and bought a business, and and you don't want it anymore?" Like he's literally sold it within within the six months of him owning it, uh, which is usually like very when people get a taste,
0: they don't ever want to go back. Yeah.
2: You know, the, yeah. yeah. What what didn't he like about it, Jared? He what what
3: made him? What did he? He bought an econ. Like?
2: Yeah, he bought an e-commerce business and he didn't realize how many moving parts there were. Mm. I traditionally, think, you know, if somebody's buying their first online business, uh, I, I move them into buying more of a media business like a blog or a content business where there's less moving parts and higher profit margins and, and less room for error. Uh, that said, my next story is an interesting one as well it's similar to what you shared with will is that we had somebody buy a business. I think it was like November last year. And, uh, the business was like decreasing, like it was, it was going down and we knew that the, the risk that were involved with it, uh, and he was prepared to go ahead. Like you said before, he's, you know, every single deal has risk and, um, just, what are you willing to take on as risk? Anyway, he's willing to take on that. And uh, the site—this is specific to online businesses—the website had got hit by five algorithm changes in a ninety-day period, and a negative SEO track tax. So, like, we've got this thing in online businesses where you got backlinks that help the—you know—help the internet see the level of the authority of the site, and uh, they had a fifty percent increase in backlinks, but they were spammy toxic backlinks which brought the overall authority of the site down so it got hit by a negative seo attack and five changes to how the site behaves on google within a 90-day period and uh it was freaking so it was like a worst case scenario for a blog right ryan like it's it's a gnarly example and uh he could have done two different things he could have folded or pulled up his socks and he pulled up his socks um, hired a SEO service. We we, we use this SEO service is what we've actually just launched a couple of months ago and uh, changed it around hugely. Like, but it was a scary, scary time for him. And that's what I think, um, I'm leaning back on what we were talking about before is like playing the long game, knowing that you should put a lot of effort in the start and get the ball moving and let it compound over time. Uh, but yeah, two, two different very different stories. One person not wanting to buy, not wanting to own a business, and one person going full charge and taking you know tackling the ball. So I thought that was quite different.
1: Ryan, how about you? I, I kind of liked everybody else. Just keep telling stories. This is great. No, I, I, <laughs> a couple. Um, I want to tell you about a family. So I had a had a, a guy named Jordan Law on my on my show like three years ago, and uh, it was one of our first episodes. And he was in his sixties, and he's he was retired. And um, he had spent his whole career in the aerospace uh, industry, right? And um, he was an executive in the aerospace. And his company that he was a part of actually went under. And he was able to negotiate a deal to acquire that business for not very much and, and really no down, downside risk for him. And uh, ended up turning around that business. And then that parlayed that into several more acquisitions in the aerospace uh, industry. And ended up having, I think, $75 million worth of exits over the next couple of years. Um, What I I love about that story, not that it's, you know, look, it's probably none of us here on the show are going to have a $75 million exit or anything like that. But he had used his corporate background and his corporate career to have insider knowledge within an industry and Mm. even within that own business, which I thought was really cool. Um, And fast forward three years later, and I had his grandsons on the show just barely uh, a couple weeks ago. And his grandson was actually the one who introduced me to him. And Ian and Max are his grandsons. And they had launched an agency a few years ago to help dental implant centers with their online marketing they were so good at what they were doing with their online marketing that they decided to buy their own dental implant center. And they are currently under offer on three more dental implant centers. And so anyways, I just love that family story of uh, the entrepreneurial adventures that their grandfather had. It sort of skipped a generation and their parents kept telling them to go get normal jobs. And they just kept doing this agency thing. And then it's morphed into uh, multiple Mm -hmm. acquisitions. And now they're running multiple dental implant centers across the nation, which is pretty exciting.
3: I, I, Ryan, I love both of those because what, what I, I think it shows is that like, if you learn how to buy a business, if you can pair that like that alone is a very powerful skill, and it and it's this amazing shortcut. And we all and so many of our guests are examples of that. But if you can then pair that with, like you said, Ryan, example A was the six-year-old guy, industry knowledge or in industry contacts, and you know you can accelerate the acquisition thing that much faster because you're already an expert in the industry, um, or or the or the the young guys who are thinking strategically about bringing in acquisition because they're basically serving their clients and they're like, why don't we be the client like why don't we just serve ourselves and like and and, and get the benefit of the, of the agency work that we're doing and actually own you know build equity in all those digital marketing services that we're providing it's it's just like I, I always feel that like the skill of acquisition is even more powerful in the hands of people who have maybe other opportunities and aren't starting from an absolute standstill to go buy business like like most of my guests yeah. are. Yeah,
0: I, I, I've i seen this over and over again, is that is that once you get your hands on your first business or even if you start your first business, you have huge advantages in the yeah. in the acquisition space. I mean, um, you know, just to be able to demonstrate to a seller that you already have a track record of success in business can often allow you to negotiate better terms. You know, you can certainly get better terms from a bank. And, and then just, if you have access to other relationships, you know, if you're already in business and you, you have the SEO guys, you know, you can bring them into the due diligence on your new acquisition. They can tell you what they're going to do once, once you get your hands on the, on the new, uh, on the new business, et cetera. So it's definitely, I think there's a real advantage to just getting in, in the game and getting a business under, under control. Um, you know, when I think back to the guests I've had on my show, I talked to a lot of people. About acquisition, and I talk to people about operational stuff in, in the world of business. But I think some of the most interesting stories came from a guest I had named Robert Gale. And I'm the first person to say to people, buy a profitable business because that's the least risky thing you can do because you've already got a cash flow established. But what Robert has a habit of doing is he has a habit of buying businesses that are like failing and fail, about to fail, and, and distressed in one way or another. And he basically came on for over an hour and told one turnaround story after another, and a couple of them that really stood out to me. And this was back in the 80s or early 90s. He bought a taxi company, and in those days the model was, of course, people didn't have cell phones, so the model was you would go to high traffic pedestrian places like malls, and you would pay a pretty hefty monthly fee to have a dedicated telephone, maybe at the front door of the mall, where if you picked up the phone, all there was no. Uh, dial on it. You just picked it up. It went straight through the taxi company and they would pay money to the phone company and usually money to the mall to have the privilege of, of having this, you know, dedicated phone line. And you could spend thousands of dollars a month having, you know, an array of these around the city. And so what they did is they employed a new technology because even from pay phones, you could dial a toll free number without putting a quarter in. So they just got a toll free number and they advertised it like crazy. And had a jingle on the radio and things like this. And they were able to to basically use technology that was available to them to kind of uh, uh, pull an end round around all of their competitors in town who were stuck with this high cost model. And and they avoided it. You know, they're just paying, you know, 30 cents every time someone called or something like that. And then the other story that really stuck with me is he bought a bottled water company that, you know, where they deliver the big bottles of water to people's homes and to businesses and things like this. And what he did is he he reformatted the capital equipment to be all the same equipment that the largest <clears throat> bottled water company in the country was using. And once he had everything changed over to the same equipment that they were using, he then went and courted them for an acquisition. And it was Brilliant. super easy for them to be able to make the decision to just absorb that operation because they oh. basically just had to relabel things. And, and, you know, when he was telling these stories, I was like, "Wow, this this he really brought an entrepreneurial um, flair to or, or entrepreneurial lens to looking at these things. You know, what can I do with this?" Uh, another example was uh, the Pop Shop. Did you ever guys ever have this? It was a franchise back in the '70s and '80s where people would would go to this place, the Pop Shop. They would get these uh, basically generic sodas in these very thick, stubby bottles. And you would bring these empties back to the pop shop and they would refill them for you. And and there was a a defunct or failing pop shop franchisee. And what he realized is that they had this whole fleet of glass out amongst corner stores and different places, these depots where people could, could swap this stuff. Um, and he thought, how can I take advantage of that for some other purpose? It was a really great episode, and uh, I, it gets comments even to this day because people find it when they go looking for, you know, deals on distressed businesses or, or whatever they're they're trying to find. It just incredible stories.
3: I I love those, David. They they strike me as so much riskier, which is why yeah. they're exciting. It's like if if this one gimmick thing, this one insight he's had doesn't work then what? So, but it's, I mean, not to, not to say it's bad, but it's just like,
0: yeah. I mean, again, my counsel to everyone is buy something that's eddy steady making cash flow. So you can, you know, if you're going to borrow money at the bank, you know, you can make the payment. I mean, this is what you want to do. But as far as, as exciting and interesting, I think, I think that would be the one for me.
2: Um, I think Harry, I think the boring ones, Sorry, I just want to add, I think the boring ones are good because you can still buy with the profit being in the purchase. And then if you want to build your wealth through acquiring businesses, buying and maybe selling is like, I love the idea of setting the business up for sale for a competitor that's like, how can I not buy this? And then you get the exit that you want and you give them what they want and everybody wins. Like, I think that's a really good exit strategy.
0: Mm-hmm. when you decide to sell you need to price it so it makes sense for someone to buy i i totally mm-hmm. agree with you what, one of the biggest mistakes i see sellers make is they they treat it like selling expensive real estate or maybe a work of art where they say i'm going to price it high and then later i can reduce the price and, and what i've what i've observed is that when you price it outrageously high all the reasonable buyers are turned off and you don't actually meet the people who are actually the qualified buyers. You meet the other people who don't know what they're doing either. And, and then you all just waste a lot of time together. I'd love to somebody.
2: hear what Ryan has to say on that. Ahead, Sorry. John. I just, I Ryan, yeah, the pricing. I also want to hear from you, Will, but I just think like I'm interested in the pricing thing because you probably see that, right?
1: David nailed you,
2: it.
1: Yeah, if you, if you go out really hot... Um, all, all reasonable buyers, just they write it off. It's, it doesn't pass the sniff test. Every buyer, every searcher is looking for a, a, a reason to say no. There's a million businesses for sale. So how do I say no fast? And if something mm-hmm. is out there for some crazy multiple or doesn't make sense, it, it just gives them a reason to move on from it. Um, and then David mentioned something. You end up with the buyers who don't know what they're doing. The buyers who don't know what they're doing and the searchers who don't know what they're doing they freak out in the eleventh hour. They can't find financing. They don't end up going through with the purchase. So you end up just wasting months and months of everybody's time. Yeah.
0: yeah, they'll agree to the price, but then later their banker tells them they can't afford it. And, yep, and yeah, you know,
1: yeah. And you don't find that out till the eleventh hour, and everybody's supposed to sign. So you just wasted three months or whatever that time could be. So, mm.
3: I interviewed somebody yesterday. It hasn't aired who used this to his advantage. So it was a SaaS business. Came out way with a ridiculous multiple, and so it got like essentially no inquiries. It just it it just scared everybody off that it was an unreasonable seller, but he kind of circled the hoop uh, and kind of stuck around, stayed in touch with the buyer, and the excuse me with the seller, and the seller eventually came down to earth, and when he did, there was there was my my buyer my guest who was still <laughs> hang, hanging out right, and so it, it worked beautifully for him. Now you you as a buyer you can't bank on that because often if somebody comes out with an unre- with unreasonable an unreasonable sale price it's because they have unreasonable expectations and those may never come down to earth but the times when they do if you're the one the last one around because because the seller scared off every other reasonable buyer it can work to your advantage as in this case
0: yeah i I've, I've got instances where where clients of mine have actually had on again off again conversations with people for like 12 13 months before eventually getting to an agreement that works for the buyer. Um, you know it's for a lot of these sellers, especially sellers who've started the business from scratch, you know they've never been through this before. And so you know if they don't get the right advice, oftentimes they can get um, their their own perceptions and expectations thrown off by running into the wrong advisors who might give them poor advice. And once that initial flag has been set in their mind of, of what kind of dollar figure they should be expecting, it's really hard to get them to move. I, I often say to people that, you know, if if someone says to a person your business is worth a million, and then later you come along and mathematically demonstrate how it's not possibly worth more than seven hundred thousand, in their mind. They have to go through a mourning process of mourning the loss of $300,000 because in their mind, they've already spent the money. Like that, that, that 300 grand was going to be a sailboat or something. And now they have to imagine a life without that, that thing. Right. So it's, it can be really difficult.
1: A, a lot of times, I I see promising and underdelivering yeah absolutely a lot of times i see with, with sellers or with, with a business owner it, it's a lot more meaningful to them this this put their kids through soccer and dance and put their kids through college um yeah. and and a lot of times if, if the valuation is really high it's either they're testing the market and they're not motivated to sell or that's their retirement number not what the business is actually worth and so yeah. You could be the first person to be the bearer of bad news. And like Will was saying, you can hang out for a long time and that that can actually be really successful. I've actually seen people do that where they do hang around for 12 to 18 months and eventually that realistic expectations finally hit and the market pushes them back to where they need to be.
3: This is also another reason why, you know, one of the things that you hear about a lot in this world is proprietary search versus brokered search. Do you go out and try to find a business by directly emailing owners and saying, hey, I'd like to buy your business or, hey, I might want to buy your business. Let's talk versus working with Ryan or, you know, any any broker who's got listings already for sale. If the listing, if the business is already for sale, it means that a broker, hopefully they're a good broker. They've set that they've done the hard work of setting the expectations in the mind of the seller so that you don't have to be the bearer of bad news that the business is probably worth a lot less Mr. Seller than, than you think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we want to go there in this conversation, but um, I just, I, in my, in my consulting work, my day-to-day work, when, you know, I mean, the reason my YouTube channel exists is it's a giant advertising, you know, for my consulting work, I just see so many Sims and business profiles that, that buyers will send to me for my input and my, and my analysis. And I'll, I'll look at them and I'll just be like, this is worth half what they're asking. I, you know, and, and I don't know if it's sellers, you know, sort of uh, you know, stating this is what I want, or I'm not going to list it. And maybe the the broker is short on listings and is willing to take it. Like I I learned pretty quickly in my brokerage career that if someone wasn't going to list something, Reasonably, that it wasn't just, it just wasn't worth my time. Yeah. I, I really shouldn't have just take it on. But I know that there are, are brokers out there who are going to take a listing because they they need to get something out there. Um, or that maybe they just don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, th- I think, it's a, common, a, I think, a think it's a combination of both. Like, sloth.
2: Like, yeah. I think it's a combination of both. Like you've got, some brokers that are like, I need some, I, you know, they want to, they might have that greed factor that they, they want to sell it for a higher possible price, have the seller happy and then have them with a happier bank account. The crazy thing is, though, you just like Ryan knows, it's like you just ruin your reputation, right? Like the, person's, the person who's selling is going to have a bad time selling it. They're not going to recommend any of their friends who own businesses to sell with that broker anymore. And then also, everybody else that's buying is like, you're like, dude, are you joking? Like it's, you know, every list business you list now, I'm just going to be like, well, it's half price because that's what it's, that's what the value of it is, right? Like people are smarter than. Some brokers think, and I mm. think it's uh, it comes down to hiring good people that, like yourself, David, that can sort of point that out, um, and then sift through the the bad brokers if they're going down that route to find the good brokers, like what Ryan does, quite light, and um, and stick with you know we just have a few brokers that we recommend using, and for people to look at buying because they're the ones that are most reputable based on their sales and their prices.
0: I think what has changed over the last few years is is just it's the internet, right? And so people have more access to more information. If they want to go and learn about this stuff, they can find information online. And I, I remember like when I first started at the end of 2008, um, we were advertising businesses for sale in the classified section of the newspaper still. And, you know, the online marketplaces had just started, you know, some of them and and we were trying that out, but we were getting just as many inquiries from the newspaper as we were from online. Um, you know, most small business buyers for for regular sort of main street businesses happen to be people that are kind of close by even the, the Q2 IBBA study that came out showed that the vast majority of sort of the main street level businesses are sold to a buyer within 20 miles of the business or something yeah. like that. And so, so, I mean, that wasn't that long ago you know that that, that was just a few years ago but um, you know people were were having a really hard time finding information people were having a hard time finding information that was applicable people would end up reading a book about business valuation that was meant you know talking about much larger businesses and they would apply those methodologies to smaller businesses which would lead to them overpaying and things like that and i and i think today the real advantage that that buyers have that they never had before is just that they can they can learn about this stuff and really educate themselves, uh, even from free content just on YouTube and podcasts and things like that.
1: For sure.
2: Mm.
0: We've got, uh, we got one more question here I want to tackle before we wind things up. Um, this is from Harry. So Harry says, most of the podcasts on small and medium-sized business acquisition and development have been predominantly portrayed with people under the age of 30, according to Harry. I think some of them are a little bit older than that. He says, I'm sure there's many people like myself over 50 that are contemplating executing business acquisition. It would be nice to learn if you or your guests would be openly looking for more searchers to interview that have been taking the plunge at an older age. I, I'd like to talk about age because amongst the the buyers I'm working with in my coaching group, um, you know, they're pretty much middle-aged and older people. And, and there is this, I think, overrepresentation of younger people in the online spaces. What, what do you guys think of that? Do you think it's just that people are more willing to be public with their business?
2: That's a, that's a, I think you're right. Probably is, you know, um, you know, like I think younger people are on the internet more, sharing more things on the internet. It's just an easier thing for them, you know. I don't know uh, about people over 50, but I know that my parents aren't, you know, jumping on Facebook and Instagram and recording their life and sharing things, um, you know. I think that could be definitely a, definitely a thing. I also think with age, it's an important one to understand. Like, you should buy businesses at any age. Like, age shouldn't matter, really. Like, buy them 60, 70, 80, whatever it is right for you. And I think also when it comes down to age, you should look at what – other assets you may or may not have in terms of risk, right? Like if somebody has a decent, you know, property portfolio and they've got a bit of money coming in and they're fine for income and they can live off that, then they can maybe take a, you know, little bit more risk than somebody that at that age that doesn't have that sort of stuff. So I think I think it's I think that's important one to understand with age too.
1: Yeah, I think I'm agree. Go ahead, David. Yeah.
0: Well, I was just going to ask if you meet many buyers in your in your brokerage uh, that are sort of like over forty ish.
1: Well, I just went through the numbers on my own podcast, and I just like scrolled through real quick, and and nine of the last ten guests are over thirty, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you know, other than the, the the two grandsons I was just telling you about who are in their late twenties, right? Um, and the last seven buyers I've worked with, one was under the age of thirty. Um, so I, you know, I you know, I think it could be we just don't know people's ages sometimes, or maybe the forums that Harry's hanging out in, but I actually see it overrepresented where uh, more people in that middle stage of their career, their five to 20 years in their corporate career are now looking for a shift. I almost see that trend more so. And and as we talked about earlier, if you've got different skill sets or knowledge skill sets or industries insider knowledge or skill sets that can heavily be applied to a business that you actually own. Right. And so I think um, there's different risks, of course, you know, the risks that I was taking when I was 22 are very different now. And I'm in my late thirties and have three kids and I don't necessarily want to risk as much. So I, maybe there's a little bit of that. And we could tell that story a little bit better, but I think, um, I actually think they're searching communities pretty well diverse from all different ages.
3: Uh, I'll just weigh in. I think 30 somethings are overrepresented on um, among my guests, I, under 20, a minority. Uh, and then and then but also there there aren't as many people in their 40s and 50s as I'd like, but there are definitely a bunch of people in their 40s. And I may have had one or two who are in their 50s. But I would just echo but and and I think that part of the reason for that is what has already been said, which is that it's a podcast and I think that Listeners of podcasts skew younger. I also think that there's this online conversation and awareness of buying businesses that's happening online. So people are learning about it from, you know, from Twitter or from listening to podcasts or whatever. Again, so you're that's going to that's going to tilt toward people who are in their 40s, 30s, and 20s. Um, and, and then the, there's also, you know, the MBA programs. The the really the top MBA programs have done a lot. To broaden awareness of ETA in the last ten years, another thing when you, David, when you're talking about the difference between now and 2008, I think that's another yeah. big thing: is the the MBA program starting with the the, the best Harvard and Stanford, um, and now more and more MBA programs are teaching ETA. So anyway, so if you are an MBA who's come out of your who's graduated from your business school and you've learned about ETA, you are kind of by definition going to be in your late 20s or, or early 30s. All that said. I I think this path is good at like somebody said maybe Jared. I think this path is good at any age. And I think that depending on the type of business, as a person with more years under your belt, you're probably in, at, at, a, at a distinct advantage, particularly oh, for yeah. example, like a blue collar business, a business that's going to be heavy on people and heavy on management because you ha- you have the, you have a lot more management experience than some 27 year old. And, um and and that I think can really be applied broadly. You might not know anything about plumbing, but you can probably manage crews of plumbers better than some 27 year old. In both cases it's probably going to be hard. maybe that's a bad example but I, I think I think you get my point. whereas maybe a digital business, maybe like a digital business, it makes more sense probably for a 30 year old than a 55 year old to buy a digital business maybe. Um, but anyway, I think I think that people with more experience, bring something to small business operations and management, uh, something really, really valuable that could actually give them an edge.
2: Yeah. I spot on agree with you, Will, because people it's, and maybe it, maybe it is a belief system that uh, you know, over fifties they might not believe that it's a right time for them to buy a business or maybe they believe they're they're too old uh, and maybe they believe they don't have anything to contribute to a business. But, like, life experience is hugely underrated, you know. That's what I think the best business owners are the ones that are quite philosophical, philosophical in their approach. They have good values, they have good morals, and they care about people. And I think the older people get typically with more life experience, they're going to be better business owners. And maybe it just does, does come down to a belief of, like, or all of these people in the 30s and 40s, like same with me, um, same, same as what you're saying, Will, is most people that I see buying business between 30 and 40. And maybe that is just overly portrayed, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is like, maybe these people that are 50 plus, are just going to be far better business owners.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you, there's there's a definitely a mismatch between the people who are appearing versus the people I work with. And so the the demographics of my YouTube channel the the vast majority of viewers are between thirty five and fifty five, so so the people in that age category are interested in this conversation. Um, when I meet people for consulting work, I meet. Did
1: he freeze
2: that... for you guys? Yeah. yeah, it's not me.
1: Yeah, well, it's weird. We're all we're all still moving. He's not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the recording's picking this up. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: there there you are.
0: Gotcha. Did I disappear for a second?
3: Yeah. yeah. You froze on us.
0: I, I, I was just saying that uh, when, when it comes to me asking people if they're interested in sharing their story, the older people are not as interested. Hundred And, and I, I think it's just maybe uh, uh, part of the, uh, you know, idea of what should be private and what should not. Right. Hmm. Uh, and and so I, I think that there's definitely something, you know, that was said earlier about younger people, maybe who grew up with the internet are more open to being uh, sharing things online. You know, that whole building in public thing that we sometimes see people do on Twitter where they're actually sharing details. I, I, I saw a young man share details about the margins on a janitorial contract he had just signed. And my comment was, uh, what if your customer sees this tweet? Yeah. Like, aren't mm. you afraid he'll want to come back and renegotiate it after he learns <laughs> how profitable this contract's going to be. And, and, uh, and the, and the person was like, what do you mean? Like, I, I don't think they had considered that. Right. And, uh, yeah. and and maybe I just bridged those two gap, the two generations. I don't know.
2: I think you touched on something important there, David is like, I know for my parents, uh, and especially my grandparents, they weren't open to sharing about where they're at with their health, let alone anything about money. Mm-hmm. And I think that was can be a taboo thing for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know for my parents, they, they're not typically going to talk about their financial situation to people um, for, I don't know why. Maybe it's like they don't want to be judged or maybe it's just not something that people used to willingly share as much as, People maybe from forty younger, um, especially the health thing, and especially the financial thing, and maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's you know that's a thing for people that are 50, 50 plus that are just not willing to share their financial position or situation or what they're doing in their financial life.
0: Well, there we go. In the interest of diversity, I will try to get more fifty plus guests on my show.
3: Well, and can I give a um, some tell tell them this, David. So a lot of people on my show, I don't know about you guys, on Acquiring Minds will say, you know, a part of the reason I want to come on is because I kind of want to pay it forward. I, I think mm. every case study that I listened to when I was searching, my guest is saying, uh, really helped. I, lo- I learned from and really helped me either kind of what I learned from about their transaction, but also just it further reinforced that this path is viable. It's not weird. Uh, people do it and I can do it. And so I now having done it, again, I'm still my guest, um, want to kind of pay it forward in that way and have other people hear my story and realize that this is a very viable path for them as well. And so, David, for the 55 year olds, like, you know, tell them that for the other 55 year olds out there um, who think it might be too late or too weird to go buy a business, the more if they can see other 55 year olds who have done it, it, it'll make them feel like, oh, this is this is something that I, I too, can do. So I, I do think yeah. that there's kind of like a um, a ripple effect, a domino effect. If you can get some people on stage it, then other people, because because, you know, you only you only you got to see the thing to, to feel like you can do the thing. You got to see somebody who looks and feels like you before you feel like that path is a safe one for you. So,
0: well, and do, you, and do you think people used to get that more from actual real com- like community from seeing people, you know, I, I I feel like the more we get online, the less we're yeah. sort of being part of our real communities, you know, knowing the people around us and, you know, seeing these examples in, in everyday life uh, in our own neighborhoods.
3: For sure. I mean, I think we we've definitely lost neighborhood communities. Yeah. So, and that's, it comes with a whole host of problems that we all struggle with and why society is falling apart. However, <laughs> we also do have, we have the opportunity for new communities where these people who buy SM, small businesses, SMBs from around the world can find each other on Twitter and on conversations like this and create a virtual community, which is extremely powerful. So win some, lose some.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I, it's time to wind this up. So I think uh, we'll go around again and uh, I'll ask each of you where people can find your stuff. If, if people want to tune into your own, to your podcast, Ryan, where, what's the name of your show and where can we find it most easily?
1: Yeah. Thanks David again for having us all on here. So Ryan, Connie, let's buy a business. So let's buy a business anywhere you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Let's buy business.com and Jared.
2: Yeah, thanks again for having us on, David. It's Really appreciate it. I think we got to do these more and more. Uh, it has been fun to hang out and chat. And uh, yeah, you can find me at buyingonlinebusinesses.com or yeah, anywhere there's in any of the platforms, type in buying online businesses and you should find us.
0: Awesome. Will?
3: My name again is Will Smith. The podcast is Acquiring Minds. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast, or go to the website acquiringminds.co. And I, you can uh, sign up to get just a notification when new episodes are released. And I, I send out a little summary. So if you don't have time to listen to all my content, you can get little blurbs on Mondays and Thursdays when I publish about what the episode's about.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks guys for joining me tonight. I I thought this was great. And uh, I'm going to say goodbye to everyone and play the, play the exit. And uh, I'll talk to you all in just a second. So, how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy! Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and i have seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.